0: Almost every client prefers a human interaction, especially in critical moments in their case. But what they don't want are the inefficiencies that come with not adopting technology for many of the non-human elements, the non-empathic elements of collaborating and getting legal advice and receiving legal services.
1: I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters Podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time in eight years. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is George Saharas, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Clio, and someone I've had the pleasure of calling a colleague and friend for almost a decade. Specializing in customer success, business development, and data operations, George has worked extensively with law schools, bar associations, and other legal professionals to help make information on cloud computing and law firm economics increasingly accessible. George, it's great to have you on the
0: show. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So George, uh, I know your extensive history at Clio well, uh, but this may be news to some of our listeners. Can you outline what your path at Clio has looked like and and what your current line of work at Clio involves?
0: Absolutely. So uh, for those that aren't familiar, I joined the Clio team 10 years ago. In fact, it will be 10 years uh, coming up on August the 1st here, uh, which I alternately describe as something that felt like an instant and also an eternity. Right. So a lot's happened in that time, but it's it's gone by very quickly. But in that time, I've, I've had the pleasure of holding a number of positions and focusing on a number of different areas. Uh, so earlier on in my time at Clue, I really focused on working with key partners in uh, the ecosystem that surrounds us. And those included groups like bar associations, uh, law schools, many of the technology and ecosystem partners uh, that are out there and essentially all the folks who work with law firms and Legal professionals, in order to help them with technology, with embracing the future, uh, and with delivering education materials as well. So anywhere people are looking to get educated, spent significant amount of time uh, getting to know the space. I had not worked in the legal profession uh, or in the legal tech space before that, and uh, it was a tremendous experience. I got to know a lot of the folks both on the ground uh, out there practicing law on the front lines and also those who, who serve them in a variety of capacities. Uh, from there, I eventually pivoted my role at Clue to really focus more on what we describe as that data operations piece. So working with what was becoming a, a very interesting and I think we often reflect on as world first uh, collection of data and as we grew, we anonymized and aggregated and studied both to inform ourselves, but also began uh, reporting back to the profession, a lot of data trends and Uh, We've come to know a lot of those things like the Legal Trends Report is a common publication, but there are many other ways as well that I work on that side of the business and with folks who are really talented and and dive into that side of things. And that's led me to a path where my focus on strategic partnerships and and this data and operational side of things has combined into a a role that is today our Chief Operating Officer at Clio. Uh, And in that capacity, I, I do a variety of things. Uh, but some of the big stuff is is working a lot with internal teams to help our company grow and scale as we hit new heights uh, and to continue working externally as well with uh, stakeholders in our community. And, and
1: George, you've been around for the vast majority of the, the Clio journey. It's it's pretty wild evolution from when you joined uh, almost a decade ago when the company was, what, I think around five people or so. It was me, Ryan, I, I think Tice, fraser and then uh and then you, so in the very early handful of employees from five employees to over five hundred today that's a pretty incredible journey what what's it been like going through that that journey? share a little bit of you know maybe some of the learnings for your for you and maybe some of the moments you reflected on you know holy smokes this this company has i i think for both of us we share this feeling become more successful and Bigger than in our wildest dreams over over ten years ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's going to be a tough one to narrow down those uh, those many moments along the way. But there are a few I, I can think of for sure. So, I think the biggest change is in where the profession as a whole is at, and even the, the types of engagements we have in, in bringing our product or, or platform and our mission, if you will, to the market. You know, early conversations were very much around can we get the internet and the cloud to work with law firms? Is this, not, not kind of a when, but an if, this is going to be a possibility and a future for law firms. And if I look back on these last 10 years, that is, has changed dramatically, right? This is now the new norm. Right. Uh, and you know, the pandemic that we're currently living through does a lot to spur that on. But even before that, you know, we've seen dramatic changes and shifts. I think we're seeing big changes in the expectations clients have of, of law firms as well. A few key moments, I think, along the way. Uh, a big one would be the very first Cleo Cloud Conference. I, I often reflect on that as a, a bit of a turning point where, you know, we look back at the company as humble beginnings for sure. But if you think about that conference as a humble beginning and, and what it's grown into today, I think we had about 150 people at the first events um, with a total community of about a couple hundred folks who uh, who attended. Yeah. It was one of those moments where we started to see the conversation, the way a, even a vendor like Clio would engage with his audience really, really transform. Uh, people became really ready to embrace the future in a new way. So that's that's a big one. And, and with it came the uh, publication of the first ever Legal Trends Report shortly thereafter the following year. It's the first time a data study like that had existed and had been published to the profession. The first time a lot of law firms even thought about their, their practices with KPIs and in the way that... Uh, a lot of other organizations would look at themselves so that's another big one a uh, few milestones as well oh, I think
1: we look back at that as as a real watershed moment for the the industry right having large scale aggregate benchmark data to start informing individual law firms in terms of how they how they stack up and
0: where the opportunities for for, for improvement yeah, both the study, but I think even the data set had never really existed in one place before until we right. and brought it all together. And I recall still to this day, a lot of folks that we've known for a while in the industry saying that we were waiting for someone to come along and be able to publish this back to us, but just didn't have access. And being able to do that was, was quite frankly, really cool. Like a lot of fun to work on. It is really a lot of fun to work on year over year, but... There's, there's no replacement for that first watershed moment where I think people are anticipating it and were hoping that we were gonna do it and then really reacted positively to, uh, to our decision to publish uh, the types of insights that we do. And a few others, you know, major milestones. We've, we've come up to over 500 employees, members of the team. Uh, that's that's crazy to look at in going from from five to, to 500 as I've had the opportunity to do and I'm sure you reflect on as well, Jack. There are moments where you look at that and think, when did that happen? You know. <laughs> Right. You know when it happened along the way, but still reflecting on it overall. Uh, and I think you and I both also encountered a lot of opinion at the the early days and outside of Clio that a scale company of this level could never exist in as niche uh, a vertical as legal or legal tech, right and it's It's incredible to not only be at that stage, but still feel like we're in the early innings of the transformation that's taking place too, which is uh, yeah, a big part of what uh, makes this job the gift that keeps on giving.
1: Right. It, it feels like we've accomplished a lot. And we, there's been a lot of transformation in the industry, but it's still early innings. We're still just getting, getting going. Um, so over the first half of your career at, at Clio, George, you really focused extensively on our partnerships with bar associations and, and law schools and uh, business development in general. And I, I remember back in the very early days of Clio, you and I sitting down at a, a cafe and kind of brainstorming what what would ultimately become, you know, the, the master plan for, for Clio's business partnerships. And it was a pretty innovative approach. And I remember some of the ideas we sketched out on the, I think literally on the back of a napkin at that restaurant. But uh, partnering with bar associations as the first cloud-based vendor, uh, starting to build relationships with law schools, doing something that seemed relatively... Uh, innovative at the time, which was giving away the software to law schools and and, and legal clinics, and, and they seemed to have an appetite for for moving away from some of these on-premise tools. Can can you share for those of the, the our listeners that may not be familiar with some of Clue's early days and building those those partnerships? What that what that venture looked like for you, and what some of your learnings along the way were?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, some of the key things that I think fly under the radar in those efforts were how long they took. Right. A lot of people look at Clio's trajectory and, and think about it as this kind of the old 10-year overnight success story, uh, if you will, that uh, rapidly grew into technology success. But for the first year, I was primarily planting seeds. I don't think a lot of bar associations or law schools were quite ready to make that, that leap or still had a healthy amount of suspicion around the future of the cloud and uh, the direction regulations would take the uh, yeah. ethics opinions they had yet to be very firmly established many are still in progress at the state yeah, level. yeah this was before the
1: first ethics opinion out of north carolina this was exactly. back when the cloud was you had to spend the first five minutes of any conversation about the cloud explaining what the cloud
0: was exactly and so there's a lot of work that went into building up the credibility the relationship the partnership with these groups But also finding the right balance of educating and informing while also being patient with them as they need to go through their own cycles in the way that they work. And I was fortunate to have founders and you and Ryan that had the patience and belief to make those types of investments. Uh, But also, I think the thing that we saw was this kind of slow burn at the beginning and then a a domino effect where once a few groups that we were looking to work with, our first few major law school legal clinics, uh, took the plunge. There's a lot of interest from others to learn more and and to participate. And then things seem to progress really, really quickly. I remember kind of 2012 and 2013 is years that were just unbelievable in terms of the amount of going from kind of outbound, trying to get on people's radar to, to chat with us and to explore even what these partnerships might look like and how they might be structured, to then kind of being overwhelmed and needing to build a team around each one of these partnership groups. Uh, in order to deal with the kind of inbound interest that we had uh, once people started working with us. And uh, right. yeah, so definitely a, a really interesting experience.
1: So tell tell us a little bit maybe in, in terms of the evolution of what you've seen in terms of comfort level with the law firms that you've been working with in terms of integrating data into their thinking, integrating becoming more data driven, which is something I know you're really passionate about, and this idea of being really data-driven is is a new concept to a lot of law firms, and it's, it's something you've been talking a lot about over the last four years. Can you maybe share what evolution and progression you've seen in the space uh, in terms of their comfort with data and putting that data to use to make better decisions?
0: Absolutely, yeah, it's been quite the transformation and definitely a journey over that period of time. Um, So first, one of the great ironies that I've always considered in the legal space is just how intuitively data-driven legal professionals are and what an important part of their domain expertise and subject matter work it is. Like, if you think about it, you're interpreting data and making data-driven decisions all day. But I always found it kind of ironic that they wouldn't shed that same light or look at their own businesses from a layer of abstraction in the same way. So if you think about a lawyer looking at a case versus a lawyer looking at the performance of their practice or even uh, client-facing KPIs, like what kind of outcomes or, or satisfaction levels are they creating with their clients? It's two different worlds, you know? They, right. they rarely uh, looked at things in the same way and almost like switch contexts and gears when they would do that. And that always struck me from the earliest days at Clio as something really, really interesting. So I started getting curious on the latter being like, you're so sort of data-driven and, and analytical in the way you think about your, your job and serving your clients, but not in the way that your business is performing. And even that term business, well, this is a legal practice. Yeah, but you still charge people money and seek to be profitable and pay taxes and operate in many ways that a business does. So it's sort of this transition in thinking. So a few of the places I first encountered it were uh, as follows. One, there weren't a lot of actual KPIs, like standardized KPIs, key performance indicators for those listening, in terms of how do you slice up a law firm? Like what's good? What's bad? How do I even start to measure stuff in a way that makes sense? You see that a lot. And and
1: what, what do you measure? What are
0: those KPIs? So I started presenting and doing some CLE sessions on that and borrowing even a lot from professional services disciplines like consulting and accounting, where things like utilization rates and realization rates, collection rates were quite common and starting to pitch those to lawyers and, and to, you know, throw them out there and getting really positive responses. I know larger law firms in particular have been using realization rates for quite a while to understand the performance of their team members. From there, I also started to observe, as Clio grew, really interesting inquiries coming in, even through our support team. Hey, I'm a family lawyer in Wisconsin. How much do you think I should charge? The response from our support team, of course, is like, look, I don't, I don't know that I should be in position to answer that question, but I remember you and I, Jack, both having light bulb moments thinking like, well, <laughs> what are the data sources out there for them to consult and could we potentially even already be the best one available. And that very quickly led to research where we saw that most of the information available was self-reported through surveys, which comes with a number of well-known biases. If people don't believe me, think about somebody asking you how much you weigh, how much you make, how tall you are. We do this funny exercise. Yeah, social desirability bias where we give the answer we think we should versus what might actually be happening. So a lot of that, right? Uh, And also, most of the surveys tended to focus on big law. So Amalot 200 uh, and at best mid-sized firms. was definitely nothing for the half a million solos out there. Uh, and 80% of folks in legal practice are in firms of about one to 10 people. So that got our journey started. And it really started this conversation that grew and grew and turned into us asking the question, like, how can we use our data to serve the profession and to educate them and inform them uh, in a way that hasn't been possible in the past? I've spent a lot of time on that over the years, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a powerful thing to be able to almost, you know, allow the profession to hold a mirror up to itself and say, you know, let's talk about what the data actually is rather than what we think the data is. And even at the individual law firm level, you you comment on this social desirability bias. And if you ask, uh, I think think there's a study from Thomson Reuters that asked small firms what their utilization rate was. And the the responses, if I am remembering correctly, were on the order of, 50 or 60% utilization rates. And again, you're kind of being asked a, a, a question you think the answer should be maybe 60-ish percent. Yeah. When we look at the hard data uh, on an anonymized and aggregated data basis in Clio, we see that that same utilization rate is 20%, 25%, You know, less than half of what the self-reported data is. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the impact that had on, on, you know, the profession number one, when that data got shared out and, and what some of the behind the scenes conversations you've had with practicing lawyers when, when they react to that data?
0: Happy to you. That's my favorite topic, especially when we talk about that watershed moment. I don't think there's any replacing those initial responses we got.
1: Right. Almost the gasp
0: of of shock. Totally. Totally. And I found it very polarizing. I'd say the majority of people were kind of like, yep, I knew it aha, finally the evidence of it looking for that things aren't quite as we expected them to be. And I'd say there was still a sizable but minority group who, who rejected it. We're kinda of like, that can't be right. That's just too low, like there's no way. Um, and I found that in both the utilization rate uh, that we calculated and published, but also in the billable rates. What we're able to do, right, is take literally tens if not hundreds of thousands of data points and aggregate them into an average. But when people are looking at their own personal data point, they're just one part of that. And so there's going to be variance and unpredictability and surprise, but also they don't have access to that number of data points, right? Like your group is, you probably call four or five other practitioners that you know, that you're close with, maybe that you went to law school with, or that mentored you. How much do you charge? Okay, I'm going to charge this much. In reality, there's a whole host of data points out there that aren't available. And so Remember, uh, to put a fine point on it, I was doing a regionalized legal trends report CLE presentations in a couple of different states years ago and uh, was doing a back-to-back uh, st- with a couple of stops in Texas where I uh, published the same stat, right? It is the average hourly rate in Texas, I think, was around $220 US per, per billable hour at the time. And in the first conference, I kind of had this group of people gang up on me after the CLE and say... <laughs> who the hell is charging that much money, right? Like, there's no way that's the average rate. Like, I can't right. get clients to pay this. And that was a, it was a family law conference uh, at the time. Fast forward a day and a half later, I'm presenting to a different group, and the response was like, who is charging that little? Like, I can't possibly be right. the number. I know this is an average over thousands of law firms in Texas, right? But it was just so interesting seeing those data points and knowing that's where we were picking the discussion up from that's where it was starting, right? It was literally kind of people not having line of sight into what any of these major benchmarks were. So before we leave the the topic of being
1: a data-driven law firm, maybe you can share two or three tips, George, if, if our listeners are, are getting stirred up about the idea of becoming more data driven, maybe they're not familiar with the legal trends report, want to dig in there, see what's available and put some of these ideas to, to use. Do you have a, a few tips you might be able to share in terms of just almost like no regrets investments in in terms of putting data to work in your law firm.
0: Absolutely. First, I I would recommend reading the Legal Trends report. It's available for free and is just a great introduction to one take on what KPIs for law firms can and should be, and also what the major, what what kind of average looks like, what great looks like out there in the world. That's a great place to start if you're not familiar with uh, the subject matter at all. Uh, building on that, I do think it's really important for law firms to have some kind of system of record. You know, full disclosure, you and I are both with Clio, which is a system of record. So, this is our leaning on the universe, but you have to count stuff, right? And I think people often get overwhelmed even at that step. But having a simple system that can track the what you do, the how you do it, uh, how much of each activity or task you do is a really, really key starting point. And to do that while you're working so that you don't have to do it on the side is Really important and and simple first step. And then I think the the last piece for folks to do is to be able to track and report what they're doing and to compare versus these benchmarks and to not have strong reactions to those things. I do see a lot of folks who are getting into it for the first time almost get seemingly overwhelmed by the the volume of things they could consider doing or the improvements they could make. My greatest tip of all is, is pick one or two. Pick one or two things that's important to you on a personal level and set goals and you'll be surprised on how setting those goals and aiming to make progress against them in in a couple of clear ways will really allow you to focus but don't boil the ocean uh, right i see that a lot with folks who are like okay i get it george i read the report so many things i want to fix oh my god now i'm kind of overwhelmed in terms of what i'm going to do and i think there's a really important kind of order of operations set up and change can be incremental too
1: yeah, I, I think that a concept of incremental change is so important, too, because it can be paralyzing almost to be looking at all the places you could be improving and impacting and all the sources of data you might want to start trying to tie into. But you can make a very incremental stepwise series of progressive steps to what will end up being a, a transformative change in the end. So, yeah, some some great tips there. Thank you. George, let's turn our attention to the current landscape and and the dramatically different world that COVID-19 is presenting us with. Uh, it's certainly been a whirlwind for everyone uh, and those in the legal industry are not accepted from that. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of the challenges you've experienced in terms of, uh, or wh- how you've seen Clio pivot to address this challenge and how we've been able to help customers through the the challenges of COVID-19?
0: Yeah uh, a whirlwind well put a whirlwind time for us all uh, to say the least. You know early on uh, we made a series of shifts like step one for us as a company was largely tearing up the <laughs> big parts of our 2020 plan and pivoting to the situation right and recognizing that uh, this moment as much as ever was a time for us to to lead and to help and to put our energies into the right things and some of those things uh, that i can point to are first setting up a, a covid relief fund i believe we've talked about it in the past and on the podcast here but it was really important to us and you know to the outside world too to know that that's really important to our team like Clio, to know that they're participating in and showing up in the ways that really matter uh, out in in the world that's getting impacted by things but we're able to set up a relief fund where we did our part i, I believe uh, for just over a million dollars of financial relief uh, to legal practices uh, across the globe. we were actually active quite quite globally, so that was a big one for us. The second was, you know, in this data-driven study, the Legal Trends Report that we publish every year, we're able to pivot to doing more real-time data insights to track the situation more closely. Again, the same problem, this, right? Like, there's no real-time or other sources out there we realize, like, it's, it's kinda gotta be us, right? So. We made an investment to pivot and uh, have done a number of subsequent uh, briefings that are available online on just how the situation's impacting. And as people hear about kind of these broader trends of a V-shaped versus U-shaped economic recovery, we've actually been able to track kind of what does that look like in legal and what evidence do we have both in terms of leading things like new business or, or matter intake for firms and more liking indicators like billings and, and collections that are taking place. So those have been important.
1: And the final one is
0: is what we did with the product. You know, uh, we were in touch with our partners and our, our customers and really pivoted to supporting the true remote law firm use case. I've seen us ship integrations with a lot of uh, products that we know people are using, things like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, uh, and other similar uh, integrations to make it more possible for people to stay up and running uh, as they've suddenly, in you know, some cases people are quite prepared and made investments in advance, but we definitely saw a lot of people in need who hadn't uh, yet accelerate their decision to be available to work remote uh, at a necessity. So those are the big ones in terms of how we really leaned in and thought this is where we need to be uh, as the impacts of the pandemic take hold.
1: And maybe looking to the results we've seen in the COVID-19 data analysis that that have come out through the COVID-19 research briefings. I, I think this is an entirely separate podcast we could we could deep dive on, um, but if you were to to give a few of the headlines from what we've seen in the latest COVID nineteen research briefing, and maybe some of the data points that you think the the average lawyer should be integrating into how they're thinking about navigating the COVID nineteen crisis, can you can you share what you might see as a few of the the headline takeaways?
0: Absolutely, they've been uh, they've been very stark and very clear and hard to miss. So uh, so easy to summarize. The, the biggest thing we saw, of course, was as the first shelter-in-place rules uh, were enacted variably at the state level, sharp declines in matter intake. Um, so our, kind of starting in mid-March and through most of April on a weekly basis, we saw pretty sharp declines in new business or new matters created uh, in, in Cleo's managed product. We saw that in most major practice areas, although there were a few that were less impacted, uh, particularly those that were more part of... You know, B2B or business-facing law, uh, commercial law areas seemed a little bit less impacted, whereas in total, ways that totally make sense, areas like traffic offenses and criminal defense really, really slowed down, both through shutdowns of courts, but also through demand uh, for services. I guess, same goes for personal injury. People are kind of like in lockdown. Uh, the The volume of that occurring and, and driving the, the funnel for law firms definitely uh, decreased. Since right. then, though, and in more recent weeks, we've seen sharp recoveries, to almost uh, across the board, pre-COVID levels of new matter intake. So it seems like it was pretty sharp, what we describe as a V-shaped decline and and bounce back for now, although the situation is still very much developing, right? Which is why we're we're tracking it, publishing on a monthly basis and then tracking the results on a week by week basis. And slightly lagging to that were billings and uh, collections that we've seen. So at the beginning, we, for the first few weeks, saw law firms get by, um, Kind of coasting off of the receivables they had and making sure they collected on those amounts. And then we saw their numbers take a hit uh, as those lower uh, matter intakes really drove impact on the financial side and in their bottom line. Uh, those two are starting to bounce back, although it's delayed uh, from, from the matter intake volumes that we've seen as, as folks might expect. Buildings trail, uh, new business. And in right. terms of the, the tips, you know, what should folks think about? Look, certainly I think it's as important as ever to be ready to be remote. We don't know, you know, are we in the second wave? We're kind of in the, the second half of the first wave. We know that this situation is going to be with us for a while and that the future of work uh, will have some long-term impacts. So, too, will uh, the future of client expectations, right? How, how clients expect to be able to engage with law firms and what their preferences are uh, will, will have a lot of long-term impact from the situation. Similarly, being as flexible as ever in the way that you accept payment, is so crucial in this time, and uh, there are a number of ways for law firms to do that. Accepting online payment methods like credit cards is a big one, and one that I know that uh, folks still have quite a bit of heartburn around for a variety of reasons. But just seems like a no-brainer uh, to me based on what we've seen in terms of uh, being ready as, as the yeah. situation develops. Hundred percent.
1: Yeah. When you when you look at uh, payments as well, I think we see consumers that are expressing the fact that they are less able than ever to pay for legal services given the financial hardship many consumers are facing. Credit card payments as well as payment plans and, and more flexible ways of billing can really help bridge that, that gap uh, for, for consumers. Can you talk about that for a moment as well?
0: Absolutely, uh, so a big part of our research has also been coupling the overall quantitative trends that we've seen with evolving client preferences and looking at those as well week over week and, and how they transform. Uh, There continues to be a lot of unsurety or lack of surety amongst clients uh, on whether or not they could afford a legal expense. What we're seeing that turn into is uh, deferral behavior. A lot of folks who don't necessarily have a time box legal issue are are putting off looking for legal advice while their own financial situation might be unstable. Uh, And there's a lot of concern around being able to pay. And so the other thing we're observing is that folks don't assume that a lot of those flexible options or ways to make it work. Uh, Exist and uh, the law firms that are doing a better job of making it known that they'll basically find a way to make it work for their clients are are seeing better results, both in terms of collecting on the amounts that are outstanding, but also in getting people to to actually inquire uh, and to convert that into new new business. So uh, a big and prevalent trend there, payment plans also kind of break it down, right, and turn it into uh, smaller chunks for folks to commit to again both in terms of actually collecting on the receivables but more importantly in getting people to engage with you in this time uh, i've seen them be pretty critical
1: so george you've, you alluded to a, a few of the big tech trends you see COVID 19 catalyzing but maybe, maybe to get really crisp on what we're talking about there can you can you share what you're seeing as some of the technology trends that that are being driven thanks to COVID 19 and if we look at the longer term impacts that COVID-19 will have on on legal where do you think we'll we'll see things change both in the
0: the short term and the long term it's a fascinating area for sure and uh one that we often remark on seeming like the next 10 to 15 years was accelerated uh into a couple of weeks when right and so at a macro level right access to justice and even online courts or something that I don't think we forecasted happening for, for many years to come. And it's one of those high level behaviors out of necessity that I think will, similar to online shopping and folks who are trying it for the first time, obviously very different uh, circumstances in online court versus shopping. But it's one of those areas where there were a lot of doubts that are now, that were originally barriers to entry that are now being overlooked or dealt with that aren't quite proving to be true. Or people had concerns about being able to be productive and working from home. Etc. So there are a lot of things that people are trying for the first time that I think will stick in different ways. And a lot of them have to do with being remote, whether that's remote to court, remote to work, and especially remote engagements between lawyers and clients. If you think about it, clients have now experienced connecting via Zoom and asynchronously collaborating via web tools, web portals, e-signatures. Are they going to be eager to kind of interrupt their workday in the middle of the day and come downtown and visit you in the bricks and mortar office? They kind of now know that there's an alternative and are probably uh, going to have some long-term preferences to stick with that and i foresee a lot of client behavior and expectation driving um, ongoing law firm behaviors in ways that they choose to, to serve their clients based on their feedback um, yeah in addition to that i, I think we are going to see law firms too change the way that they work and collaborate and work asynchronously most firms that i spoke to had serious apprehensions about their ability to be productive and to coordinate and collaborate and stay on top of things, and they've had to figure that out just because of the circumstance. Right. Now, and I actually see a lot of folks reaping the benefits and having really positive reviews that they didn't think they would have uh, in working in their remote circumstance. So, those are some of the broad trends related to the pandemic that I think stick around in the midterm and in the long term. Yeah, yeah see yeah, a probably a different topic, but see a whole bunch of uh, developing trends.
1: So let, let's follow up on, 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 the, on that question. When, when you look at the, the longer-term impact that COVID-19 will, will have on, on law firms, but may, maybe also independent of COVID-19, the change that we've seen accelerated, where do you see things going in the next 10 years? If you kind of put on your prognosticating hat and, and think about where are things headed over the next decade, what's, what's your
0: take on on what we'll be seeing? One of my favorite hats so uh, you don't have to ask me twice to, uh, to put that <laughs> one. Up. Uh, yeah, I think you make a, a really excellent point there Jack in that there's been an acceleration but not a changing course as far as I'm concerned and maybe that's the the 10 years of longevity at Clio speaking where we've seen the earlier stages of this progression happen but yeah happy to, to comment on that a bit. When I first started at Clio one of the key themes and ideas circling uh, the waters of legal as I became acquainted with the space was Richard Susskind's uh, book, The End of Lawyers, which suggests that at some point AI will become robust enough to replace uh, humans as the providers of basic legal advice. Since then, you know, Richard has done excellent work, has been a previous uh, guest on this podcast as well in, you know, further articulating his position. But I think he did a great job of opening up a conversation thread. And it's always been this Kind of limbic brain of fear that I see sticking around in lawyers, which is, do I need to resist tech because one day it's going to replace me? Is that where the end game is? What's been interesting for me in the various travels and journeys of research that I've been a part of, that uh, collaborated with you on Jack, is almost every client prefers a human interaction, especially in critical moments in their case. But what they don't want are the inefficiencies that come with not adopting technology for many of the non-human elements, the non-empathic elements of collaborating and getting legal advice and receiving legal services. So if I play that all back. It's the same pattern that I see accelerated in COVID, but that we're inevitably heading toward, which is a more client experience and user-friendly legal experience driven by emphasizing human contact and de-emphasizing the bundled up costs and uh, fixed requirements of the billable hour and, and the prevalent and existing traditional law firm model. So, what that means are things like Aaron Levine is, is a fantastic uh, advocate and early adopter of this methodology, but things like subscription based legal services, where if we take payment plans and, and similar options, make them more user friendly and transparent to end consumers, they're far more likely to engage and be satisfied with the services that they've received. Technology is an underpinning of that. It's not an underpinning, in my opinion, of robot lawyers replacing human lawyers. Right. And as Richard points out in, in his book, I, I think it's
1: exactly the, he frames it perfectly, which is how does technology enable us to deliver legal services in a way that they've never been able to exactly. in the past rather than seeing technology as a as a threat? And, and what's been so interesting to me looking at the data from the legal trends report and some of the shifts we've been seeing over the last few months in the, uh, in the industry is technology helping reconcile what we've seen is the gap between consumer expectations and lawyer expectations. And you, you just touched on this, which was consumers indicate a strong preference. And we've seen this through the legal trends report research indicate a strong preference for in-person meetings, for learning about the key details of a case, talking strategy about a case, uh, whereas on the flip side, lawyers have a strong preference for phone calls or, or even email communications around those things. And I think what we've seen the, the pandemic help create is the, the clarity maybe that a, a Zoom call, as we're on right now, really helped marry the best of both worlds and kind of bring the benefits of an in-person meeting to, uh, to the client and bring the convenience and relatively low overhead. Of a phone call to to the lawyer, so it ends up being a, a pretty interesting win win and i I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on other areas technology might be able to help deliver those same win wins for both clients and lawyers
0: that's a great great call out and one thing i'll 'll zoom in on a bit on on your example of zoom calls is. If we had put that option on an original survey of both lawyers and clients, neither would have selected Zoom calls as a preferred method. One prefers the in-person meeting, the other prefers the phone call.
1: Amazingly, just a year ago, if we asked that question, I think the response back would have been, what's a Zoom call? Like it's, It's gone from being relatively unknown to a, a, a verb in the, in the vernacular.
0: In a surprisingly workable option for both parties that neither would have thought to select, right? And so when we talk about the pandemic accelerating some of these changes, it's, that's a great example of that. Um, and presenting alternative options to what folks would have considered uh, and had front of mind uh, prior to that. So, you know, we give the examples of synchronous collaboration, big part of legal practice. I think the other major area that I think about a lot in technology is asynchronous collaboration. So there's a whole bunch of back and forth of staff the service layer of interaction, the client experience journey uh, that your book, Jack, does a great job cataloging and, and describing. That's the area that's gonna be transformed dramatically uh, in, in the years to come with, with technology, right? So many of these tasks that no one's particularly excited about uh, are time consuming, they're repetitive, if we think about where robots are going to serve lawyers and their clients uh, in using the term loosely, technology perhaps is a better alternative. That, that's where the transformation is really going to happen, right? There's a lot of things that are mundane, repetitive, not high value. Those need to be automated and streamlined and made easier. And typically law firms really think about that from their perspective. Like this is a high friction experience for me. I, I'd implore everyone to think about that from the client's perspective. What's right. a high friction experience from their end, right? And what can technology do to to make that a lot easier and and faster for them. And keep in mind that their experiences and the bar they're setting are very much informed by other industries or other goods and services that they consume. So uh, we often use the example of something like switching gears from Amazon or Uber uh, to consuming a law firm services. It's quite the the shift, right? Uh, It feels like a different experience. And yet what efficient looks like in the client's mind is getting set by their experiences and other, uh, other buying behaviors that they have. So that's a big one, and you know I think the other thing we're likely to see is the advent of systems of intelligence, and so a lot of things that are you know simple or repetitive tasks today, or things that are time-consuming for lawyers, can be sped up with technology tools that use various types of artificial intelligence. Some great things going on in fields like legal research, uh, and document creation, where a lot of them, again, this manual sort of stuff you'd have to do or have someone on your team do, can be very quickly automated. Uh, with the use of proficient tools. Really exciting things to come there, and uh, a lot of stuff that uh, I think is a very manual process can be accelerated in the years to come.
1: So final question, George. We've seen in other economic downturns, we certainly saw this in the 2008-2009 financial crisis where, where Clio was born. There's law firms that emerge from those crises as winners, and there's law firms that emerge as losers. What's your take on some of the, you know, tactical and strategic things that a law firm can be doing to ensure that they're emerging from this pandemic stronger than when they entered it?
0: Such a fantastic question and you're right, this is our second uh, economic downturn. (laughs) So what we saw in the first one that I think is really informative was a leveling of the playing field and a bit of a migration from mega firms into boutique and solo law firm practices a lot of people were in the market looking for a product like Clio at the time because it enabled them to walk away from all this administrative support and structure and pooled marketing they had access to in larger and mid-sized firms. And they had the kind of confidence and, and faith that they could figure it out on their own and offer lower prices. It was basically the, the biggest piece, more personalized service and more affordable service than, than people were accustomed to At larger firms and that that did constitute a major transformation in those years uh, for some of the norms of legal practice we're going to see something similar happen again and to me i think it really evolves around client expectations there will be more competition for a finite amount of business um, especially if we enter a more prolonged economic downturn and the lasting behavior at a leave is clients calling a few more of the shots what are some examples of that Overwhelmingly, and this, again, is borrowing from a illegal trends report finding, law firms aren't very good at being responsive to client inquiries. So when people are ready to buy in the law and, firm... And that's putting like, it
1: mildly. Putting it mildly, right? <laughs> like 65%
0: of inquiries don't get responded to at all, which would be, again, putting it mildly, an absolute dumpster fire in any other, any other discipline, in any other subject matter area. If you went to a store and 65% of the time, you know, nobody working there bothered replying to your question, I think you'd be pretty disappointed. There are huge strides we can take, and I think there are a number of factors that have prevented that from, from evolving as rapidly as they have, but the economic downturn, I think, will apply some pressure that see some innovators become successful and then double down on those strategies, and that's a big one. Client responsiveness, both at the beginning, but also throughout uh, the life cycle. We commented on this as well, but more transparent and sort of set expectations around cost. Again, as people are cost conscious, they're risk averse and not as willing to take on the open-ended risk of a a case varies a lot by practice area type for sure, but there'll be some lasting behaviors there that if practitioners can take the risk and make an alternative fee arrangement model work, they'll be in position to embrace the future and double down on that and, and to continue exploring that model further. But if they can make it viable now, that'll be something that sticks and that does differentiate them, in my opinion, from, from the pack. And so those are two areas. You know, If I were uh, in a small or solo private practice today, even a mid-sized one as well, I'd spend a lot of time mapping my client journey and figuring out those key places where I want to change it up. And I think that the remote working environment and much of the technology adoption with it uh, that we've seen makes that more feasible than ever before. I think an
1: important point, the Legal Trends Report, highlights as well as the the bar is pretty low you do not need to do anything amazingly well to massively (laughs) differentiate yourself from what is the the norm in the marketplace
0: like calling back at all you're already right Right. exactly (laughs) when we talk about incremental steps that we mentioned earlier i mean this is it these are the types of things that we're talking about and that'd be my challenge and call to action to to the listeners we have in the podcast here is don't dream big, right? By all means, think big and dream big and, and set your bar up excellent, but realize that this adoption and migration and switch we're talking about, it doesn't take much to to stand out and to be uh, really forward thinking.
1: And it's a, a unique time, thanks to COVID, to, to be innovating and experimenting. And we've got, I think, permission to do that in a way that we we haven't ever had really as an industry. So an exciting time, uh, to say the least. Uh, George really enjoyed our conversation, so many useful insights. I, I think we'll certainly have to get you back on the show to go a bit deeper on the COVID-19 research data as we continue to monitor that. But thank you in the meantime for joining us and look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, likewise, it's a pleasure
0: being here. And uh, the uh, longtime listener, first time uh, interviewee line applies to me and uh, had a lot of fun, thanks Jack.
1: Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.